0: Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Such a loving staff. So I want to invite uh, my my brother, Steve. Dr. Steve is my my little baby brother, and I've been raising him since he was little. And uh, um, we just were in conversation this past year, and I just felt like some of the things that God was saying to his church through him, I wanted God to say to our church through him. And I think there, as we close out the year and think about 2012 and the year ahead, I think what he's going to bring from God's word is going to be very powerfully used in your lives. And so with an open heart, I want you to welcome Steve up as he comes to bring the word. It's great to be able to be here for this final Sunday of 2012. Um, even as I was thinking about Harvest, and I realized that uh, um, you had actually joined us for a joint worship during the New Year's service uh, of this year. And so it's uh, preaching to you in the very first Sunday of this year, and I guess they're bookending it with this service on the 30th of December. Uh, If you were there at that joint service back in January, um, I, I talked a bit at that time about the importance of reflecting and remembering and how often when we turn over a new year, this whole New Year celebration of closing out a year and welcoming a new one tends not to be really on our radar as part of our religious calendar. You know, it's not something that we really feel has much spiritual overtones to it, but that it is, in fact, a very important landmark in which Christians ought to take pause and think about what it means to uh, bring faith into the celebration of a new year. And if you were there at the joint service, you also know that, uh, in our church anyway, at, at Emmanuel, one of the things I've been doing for the last several years as kind of a tradition is showing a year in review video that kind of just takes a panoramic look back at everything that happened in 2003. And, um, I know this sort of been a personal tradition of mine. I love scouring the internet for these videos and, I watch like dozens of them, actually, toward the end of the year. And when I do, it's always shocking to me, thinking, wow, that happened in 2012, huh? And it's always a little mind-blowing to think about all that God did in just the span of one small year. And so even before I get into the text of what I want to share this morning, uh, let's take a look at it. last year. It, I mean, at the, uh, in January, if you were there at the service, you saw the 2011 uh, Zeitgeist video and Uh, Basically what it is is these guys take together the top Google searches every year and they compile it and they sort of uh, say that that would be representative of the things that were important sort of in popular culture for that year. So I want to show you the 2012 Zeitgeist video. So we'll go ahead and take a look at that and we'll go on into what I want to share with you today. I've is so important, one voice can make a difference. The uh, 1993 romantic comedy *Groundhog's Day*. Um, Bill Murray plays this really jaded and cynical middle-aged weatherman who's annoyingly narcissistic, and you can see that he sort of has assessed his life and come to the cl- conclusion that it just doesn't amount to much, and so he just seems to be coasting in life. And every year, as a local weatherman, he goes to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania to do the requisite coverage of Groundhog's Day, to see if Punxsutawney filled this silly little, you know, ro- rodent comes out of his cage and then hides from his shadow or doesn't hide and will then therefore indicate whether we're going to have six more weeks of winter. And you can see his heart is not in it, but he goes through the motions, gets the requisite coverage, and then he goes back to his hotel room to go to sleep, wake up and go back home the next day. But a funny thing happens the next morning. He is awoken by his alarm radio to the very same song that was playing the previous morning. He finds it a little curious, gets up, gets dressed, goes down. And the curiosity continues as he begins to run into the very same people that he ran into the previous day in the hallway, in the lobby, and then bumps into the same person on the street. And suddenly, he realizes... Phil realizes that he's living the same day that he did yesterday, Groundhog's Day. Well, at first, he's in denial. He's in utter disbelief. This, this can't be happening. This is not possible. But once he begins to realize that for whatever reason, he's trapped in this endless loop, reliving Groundhog's Day again and again and again, Phil discovers that there are some interesting perks with being able to do this. And so he starts to have fun. He realizes that he can live recklessly. And there are no consequences to what he does. And so one day he's driving in a car, and for no good reason, he just crashes it. And the policeman comes to file the report, and he just starts mouthing off to the cop. And the cop just just can't believe this guy's talking to him like this. Finally, he arrests him. And with this knowing grin on his face, they show him in jail, in lockup. The very next morning, sure enough, he doesn't wake up in county jail. He wakes up in his hotel room, a free man. He begins hitting on women, pretty women, in diners. And he finds out everything that he can about them. And then the next day, he goes back to that same diner. Now he knows their interests, their desires, their hopes, their dreams. And now he can hit on them like no other man could. And they're in disbelief. How can this man know my soul? So it's because... This is about the 50th date with him, you know? You just don't realize it. So Phil is going through all of these hijinks and just loving it now until eventually he begins to settle into despair. Despair. These games no longer hold the enjoyment that they once did. And it's not until he enters this stage of despair that he finally begins to learn. He begins to learn. Because forced to relive the same day, again and again and again, Phil is forced to look at his life, look at the pathetic nature of his life and what he's become as a man. And he doesn't like what he sees. Now, let me say this. It's easy to dismiss Groundhog's Day as just a silly romantic comedy. But I think the message of this movie is actually rather profound because in a sense, all of us may fall into that same loop of in essence reliving the same day again and again and again. And what happens is life begins to pass you by like a blur. The days blend into weeks that blend into months that blend into years. And for some of us, we're trapped in Groundhog's Day as well. And it's not until we actually pause and take stock of our lives and look hard in the mirror and recognize what's happening in our lives that we actually learn and grow and change. One of the things we can say is this. If we don't remember, we cannot learn. And if we don't learn, we cannot change. And I want to invite you to reflect on that as we close out 2012. Would that describe your life? Do the days tend to just blur one to the next? And all kinds of things are happening in your life, but for all intents and purposes, you're not learning. You're not taking stock. You're not remembering. You're not growing. You're not changing. Over and over again, the Bible commands us. God commands us, his people. Remember, reflect, meditate on the past events that have happened in your life. It becomes one of the most important themes in the book of Deuteronomy. After everything the Israelites went through, 400 years of slavery in Egypt, and now 40 years of wandering in the desert, and the people of Israel are gathered at the plains of Midian, ready to enter the promised land. And so Moses gathers the people, and that is the heart of the message that he has for his people. Remember, remember your history, remember everything that has happened to you these years. Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse 10 through 18, we find these words, when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord, your God, for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord, your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land, with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so affirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. I think there's a lot of confusion about this idea of being commanded to remember. Because at some level you're thinking, what are you telling me to do exactly? Like, am I supposed to sit down at my desk and just go, all right, what happened in January? And then what was February like? Uh, I don't remember March so well. We're not just talking about simple recall here. It's not about a nostalgic stroll down memory lane. I think there's often a misconception about how memory works to begin with. I think often we think that our memory looks like this, as though our brains are just filing cabinets, and we're just basically sequentially storing the events of our life objectively. Now, any of you who have studied psychology know clearly this is not how our minds work. It th- we, we're naive if we think we could be this objective about our memory. Instead, our memory looks a lot more like this. <laughs> like a Salvador Dali painting. Okay. Um, the only way that we archive memories is by telling stories. That's the only way we can store memories. In other words, we could say this. All memory is interpretation all memory is interpretation at some level. Meaning that all of these disparate facts and events and things that are going on in your life, the only way to store them and make sense of them is by telling a story out of them. And the message then comes out is this. The story that you tell is very important. And what is the story that you tell yourself of your own life? You are the author of your life at some level. You are your own autobiographer. What is the story you're telling of your life? How will chapter 2012 be registered in your memory? I want to say this. And basically, let me show you one more picture. This, in essence, looks like our memory then. Just a string of abstract drawings or paintings strung together that, in essence, ultimately tells the story of our lives. We can say this, remembering is the active engagement of our heart and mind to reflect on past events and craft the narrative of our lives through the perspective of faith. This is why God told the Israelites, be careful how you remember. It's not just that we remember, but be careful how you remember your past. Because he warns them, this is at the heart of his message, there is this terrible tendency that all of us have in retelling the story of our lives to, in essence, write God out of that story. He doesn't factor very significantly in the events of our lives. And that's why in verse 17 of Deuteronomy 8, he says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hand have produced this wealth for me. This is always the tendency of the human heart, to focus on what we have done, the choices that we have made, our decisions, our actions. I did this for my life. And at one level, who can really blame us? Because these are the things that are readily accessible to us, aren't they? I mean, if I were to ask you, what happened last week? Well, I, I think you could rattle off a whole list of things that happened and it probably centered around what you did. Oh, I met with so-and-so for lunch and then at work, I finished that project and then, Oh yeah, I, yeah, I made myself a tuna sandwich on Wednesday and uh, whatever I skipped, you know, and you could rattle off things you have done, right? Things you thought, things you went through. These are the things that are readily accessible to us. And so it's only obvious that they would be the stuff of our memories The stuff that we register, the things that we store for history, our own personal history. But now let me ask you this. What if I were to change the question a little bit and I said, what did God do in your life last week? Well, I'm going to guess you're not going to be able to rattle off the tip of your tongue. Oh, let me share with you what God did this last week. I'm going to guess that most of you go, huh? Oh, that's an interesting question. What did God do last week in my life? I don't really know what God did in my life last week. Because often we see a world in which our actions are center stage. What we're doing matters. One of the things we can say is this. Um, Self-reflection and the examination of our own actions is important. It's important. But even more important is the ability to recognize and give glory to God for his works in our life. And I want to affirm this. I want to confess this even as a pastor. That perspective doesn't come so easily. It's not automatic. This requires some work, an open and sensitive heart to hearing from God, often what he is trying to do in our lives. And let's be honest here. Even as Christians... We don't often take pause in our life to reflect on that, to ask God, what are you trying to say to me? What are you doing in my life? How do I understand these circumstances that are going on in my life, good or bad? I would challenge you to think back to 2012 and all of the drama that happened in our world, in your neighborhood, but also in your life personally. What was the drama that unfolded this last year? Maybe what God is asking of you as you close out this year is to try to see this year through the eyes of faith and recognize God's movements and the things that he has brought you to. Let me try to flesh this out a little bit into a little bit more practical terms as to what the act of remembering looks like for Christians. The first thing that we can say is often remembrance and thanksgiving go hand in hand in the Bible. Quite often, when there's a command for God's people to remember, it's also accompanied with a command to give praise to him or to give glory to him. Thank him for the things that he has done. Now, one of the things I find interesting is this. I don't know if I could say that the average Christian just on face value, after a five-minute conversation, I would describe as a more thankful person than the average non-Christian. And I don't know if that's the word on the street here in America. Would you think it is? Like, ah, those Christians, I don't know about those weird guys. They're just always, I don't know what the word is. They're just they're just always so thankful. <laughs> I mean, do you hear that in your workplace as the stereotype of a Christian? They're just always so thankful. I don't get it. Let's be honest here. I think many of us, struggle with this issue of thanksgiving it's not something that readily fills our heart and you know even the songs that we sung this morning you know uh i think often we can mouth the words but what are you really so excited about what are you giving glory to god for what i want to say is this remembering gives substance to our thanksgiving because frankly For most of us, I think, coming to church on any given Sunday, we look back and go, this last week was a blur. (laughs) It was just, I felt like I was just here. And I'm raising my hand and I'm singing these songs, but when I'm giving praise to God, you know, there's not a whole lot in my head that I'm really thankful for. In fact, I think for many of us, our minds are distracted somewhere else. We're already thinking about what we have to do once church service ends, aren't we? We're thinking about, boy, I sure hope the Bears win and I hope Minnesota loses, <laughs> you know? We're, we, we don't remember, you know, the song we sing, 10,000 Reasons Why We Bless the Lord. Let me ask you honest, can you come up with three? <laughs> not, let's not shoot for the 10,000. Can you come up with three reasons to bless the Lord? A lot of times our praise is empty and meaningless and amorphous and vague because we just don't remember. We're just living life. We're just treading water. We're just trying to survive. We're just trying to get through another week. And I wonder how different harvest worship would be every Sunday if its members spend Sunday mornings drinking your morning coffee and just spending about 10 minutes reflecting on the last week and thinking about all God has done in your life. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, God says, But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, the Apostle Paul echoes the same sentiment when he says, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? You see, in the Christian worldview... It's not saying that your actions are not important. They are. Your movements and decisions and choices in life matter. But in the Christian worldview, there is a higher level of acknowledgement that even what I do could only be done by God's grace. I see the unseen hand of God that is sustaining me in everything that I attempt. The job that you have is because of your education. But who gave your education? Who brought you to that family that enabled you to have the education that you did? Why are you now living in the wealthiest country in the world? In unprecedented times. Yeah, there's an economic downturn, but that notwithstanding, we're still living ridiculously wealthy compared to the rest of the world. Did you make that happen? Is that about you? As God says, I am the one who has given you everything that you have in your life. And so God says, remember, remember. And in that remembrance, remember my hand in everything that you have received. When remembering is combined with thanksgiving, it becomes worship. The next thing that I want to say in terms of this act of remembering is is that we need to grow our faith through trials. In the few verses before the passage we read in Deuteronomy 8, in verses 2 to 3, we find these words. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What God is saying is, don't just remember the good times. Remember the bad times. Although for many of us as a defense mechanism, we just as soon forget about those times. I think in truth, there are all of us here have seasons in our life that we would just as soon wish we could forget about. But God says actually, no, remember those moments. Remember them because they are just as important as the good times in your life. And what God is saying to the Israelites was, that whole period of suffering in the desert was a time of testing to reveal what was the condition of your hearts. Now, God is omniscient. He knows everything. He doesn't need to know what's in your heart. It's not like, gee, I wonder if John could stand up under that torment, you know? Let's find out. God knows already. It's really for us to give us an opportunity to put on display our faith so that by going through that time of testing, our faith can grow and our trust in God can grow. These tests are opportunities to allow our faith to manifest itself by putting our trust in God, thus enabling our faith to grow further. The writer of Hebrews says something interesting about suffering and all hardship. He says in Hebrews chapter 12 verse seven, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as a son for what as sons for what son is not disciplined by his father. Now, I'm going to guess that some of us kind of cringe when we hear these words because it says something seemingly distressing about difficulties in our life when we particularly hear that D word, discipline. And it seems to confirm all of our worst notions of God as an angry man, always ready to whip us. But that word discipline is Best interpreted, not so much as punishment for wrongdoing, you know, so that the, the, the wrong thinking goes every time something bad happens in my life. It's because I did something wrong and God is striking me down. A better way to understand that word discipline is training, training. And if we understand it that way, then what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say to us is this every trial every difficulty, every moment of suffering that you go through in your life is an opportunity from God to train you and mature you, for you to become the kind of person that he wills you to be. To me, one of the most gripping verses in the entire New Testament is found in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2. It's interesting. Um, If you were to ask the Israelites... What were the good times and what were the bad times? I think they would basically say it like this. Well, that's very easy. The bad times, slavery, okay? We're being beaten up by Pharaoh's men all all the time. Bad times, the wilderness. That was horrible. Just eating nothing but manna every single day and walking among sand and rocks in the desert heat for 40 years. That was sheer misery. Good times? When we enter the promised land and we we were finally able to enter this land flowing with milk and honey and have all this awesome stuff, fertile land, farms, houses. But when God recalls the history of Israel, he actually flips that completely 180 degrees. And this is what God said to the people of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter two, verse two, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. What God says is, these days in Palestine, in this land of milk and honey, the promised land, these are headache days for me because you guys are constantly running away from me and committing adultery. The days that I remember most fondly were the days in the wilderness. When you, He describes it like it was their honeymoon, like a newlywed bride. You followed me in the desert, and we were just together among those rocks for 40 years. And although those were difficult years, those were years when you learned that I was all you needed in this life. In a world filled with sin and brokenness, there are many reasons why bad things happen in our lives. And I don't want to get simplistic about it. There's no easy answers for suffering and evil. Nevertheless, there is a message here clearly that we need to understand, and it is this. If you believe in God, there is no such thing as meaningless suffering. Do you understand that? There is no such thing as meaningless suffering. Everything has a purpose. And it's all for your good. It's all for your good. I think there are seasons in our life that are so difficult that it's sort of like we want to give God a pass. You know, like, I don't know where you were during those times, but I forgive you because you're God and I'm not. And whatever, God, I don't know. You let me down that time, but just don't let it happen again. And uh, let's just forget that chapter. I don't know how 2012 is for you. Maybe it's been a banner year. Work is going great. Your family is growing. Just great things are happening in your life. Everything's on the upswing. But maybe for some of you, 2012 is a year you would rather just never existed. Maybe family crises, medical conditions, loss of job, loss of loved ones. I don't know. But the message clearly in the Bible is that even in the times of difficulty, God is there. And it's not meaningless. But there is a purpose for your good, for everything happening in your life. A couple more things and we'll just wrap up here. The Bible also teaches that remembrance isn't purely an intellectual exercise. But often, he calls for physical expressions or reminders of the things that have happened in your life. We find this to be true as the Israelites are getting ready to cross out of the Sinai desert and into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And in Joshua chapter 4, verses 4 to 9, we find these words. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the numbers of the tribe of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the, from the middle of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood and they are there to this day. So he says, go and get these stones. And stack them up in your camp. And so everywhere you're going, you see these 12 stones stacked up. And, you know, what's going to happen, he says, there's going to be generations that never saw what happened here. They were not eyewitnesses to this miracle when God stopped the waters. And they're going to say, what's the deal with these stones? You know, like, why are we, you know, hauling these things everywhere? And they say, that'll be the occasion to tell them the story once again of what I did in your life those many years ago when I brought you into this land of promise. Something similar is going on in the book of Numbers in chapter 15, verse 37 to 41. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corner of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by going after the lusts of your own heart and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So these Israelites, I mean, I don't know if we ever really thought about this. But in the Old Testament, the Jews, in every one of their articles of clothing, had these little tassels dangling around everywhere. It's a bit hard to be macho, I guess, for a guy like that going, really, do I have to really wear like this? Yes, you do. So everywhere you're walking around, these tassels are swinging around. And you're like, what's the deal with these tassels? I don't like them. And it's like every time you look at the clothes you're wearing, every day, you go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I forgot. It's to remind me that I am to obey the Lord my God, who delivered me. And I think God understands the frailty of the human mind, of the human heart, how easy we are to forget. And so he says sometimes you need physical reminders, whether it's a memorial of stones or whether it is tassels on your clothes. So what I'm proposing is that every Harvest member sew tassels for 2013. I'm just kidding. I want to ask you this. Are there any watershed moments in your life when God really broke through and did something important? There, I think, are those kind of moments in just about all of our lives. And maybe we need some physical reminder of that. If you go to my office at the ministry center, you know which one is my office because it's filled with pictures of Africa. Okay? So there's just, it's like my, some of my church members are like, oh, there's no pictures of us? You know, like, it's all Africa pictures there. But one of the reasons why I had those pictures there is to remind me of some of the miraculous things that God had done in my life during those years as a missionary in Africa. In high school, I was driving up to Wisconsin to go skiing with my brother-in-law. We were going a little too fast than we ought to have been. It was a blizzard. The highway was covered with snow. We went off the road going really, really fast. And we went into the, the ditch, and our car began to turn over and flip. And it was going like this for about two, 300 yards until it finally stopped. I blacked out. I passed out in the midst of the rolling. When I came to and got back to consciousness, the entire front windshield and the roof of the car caved in. And I, didn't re- I was holding something in my hand. I, I didn't know what it was, and I looked, and I was holding the handle, bar of the, door, the handle of the door in my hand. I had ripped it off without even realizing it. Somehow we crawled out of the broken glass onto the roadside, and we just stared at the car, and it was demolished. When the state trooper came, he looked at the car, and he looked at us. We didn't have our seatbelts on, okay? We were not restrained. He looked at the car, and he looked at us and said, you guys were in that car? I said, yeah, we were. And he goes, are you guys hurt? I go, As far as we can tell, no. We didn't even have a scratch on us. And he couldn't believe it because there's no way you guys were in that car. Because whoever is in that car should be dead. And we looked at where the car went off the road. It was ridiculous. You could see, you know, the carnage we created as the car was tumbling. For years, I kept a piece of the broken rear reflector on my desk as a high school student. And every time I looked at that broken reflector, I realized how God saved my life that day. I don't know for you what that might mean, but if God had done something significant in your life, maybe there's some kind of physical reminder that you can find, that you could put on your dresser or on your car dashboard to always remind you of what he had done in that period in your life and how he showed himself strong. The last thing that I just want to say is this, and we'll close. Testifying to God's great deeds. Remembrance should not be confined as an individual act. The Bible describes remembrance as a communal act, as a communal activity. Meaning that in any community of God's people, this ought to be something that is happening as part of their faith life, is sharing the faith stories, with one another as we remember, testifying to God's great deeds. This is one of the things that I so miss about the African church, is regardless of denomination, regardless of what part of Africa you're in, one of the commonalities in just about every African church is there is almost always a testimony time in any Sunday service. And I, I used to, those used to be some of my favorite times in this service, and the services were long. Often they were like four or five hours long, you know? But part of the reason they're so long is because Everyone in the congregation is given an opportunity to testify. And so they're playing the music and people are dancing and the pastor will get up there and goes, does anyone have a testimony of the Lord? And some lady will get up there all smiling and says, oh yes, I did not know how I was going to pay the school fees for my children. And an uncle showed up and he gave us just enough money so that our children will not be kicked out of school. And everyone praises the Lord and everyone is celebrating. Does anyone else have a testimony from the Lord? And someone else will come dancing up there and share about what God has done. And at the end of it, you're just struck going, wow, God is alive, God is at work, amen, praise God. And that's very biblical, we find that in scripture. In Psalm 78, verse four, we will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonder he has done. Generation telling generation of what God has done. You know, God may be doing a lot of things in your life, but you're just bottling it up. You're too embarrassed or shy or awkward to testify of it. I pray that Harvest would be a church where that is an integral part of your DNA, whether it's the worship team or your community groups or whatever else in your fellowships, even on your Sunday services, where there is a regular testimony ringing out from this church of what God is doing among the members so that through that testimony, the faith of everyone can be strengthened. Amen? Let us pray. As Pastor Dave said, this is a rededication Sunday as we close out another year. And in rededicating our lives to the Lord, one of the things that we're being called to is this act of remembrance. To rededicate our lives shouldn't be a perfunctory annual event. It shouldn't even be about heroism, trying to be heroic and making radical pledges to God. It ought to be ultimately an act of faith that says, thus God has brought me, thus he will carry me from this point forward. The reason why I want to rededicate my life to God is because he is worthy of my dedication he has proven himself faithful in my life and maybe for some of us we really are struggling to confess that testimony the circumstances in your life are what is shouting at you the pain is what is shouting at you maybe your pride is shouting at you why do i have to give credit to god for any of this i made this happen I'm, not, I'm the one that went to school and studied hard. I'm the one that is coming up with these brilliant ideas at work. So that's why I got the promotion. You know? And God says, you know, what do you have that you did not receive? Everything you have has come from my hand, whether you're able to acknowledge it or not. Again, in this room is represented some wonderful testimonies of celebration. Children brought into the family financial success, just one moment of celebration after another, but also represented in this room is a lot of pain, struggle, and trials. How do we then come together as one community to worship God? The commonality is faith. Faith, that whether it's a banner year or a year of great trial, God is faithful. And even when it's hard to see His hand, It is there. Maybe what God is asking of you is, you know, I have been at work in your life in a lot of ways. But there's a lot of blindness there. There's a lot of refusal to acknowledge what I've been doing. So God is saying to you, as you close out 2012 and get ready to welcome 2013, would you spend some time reflecting, meditating, and ultimately let that meditation lead to worship and giving glory to me. You need to be so filled with my bigness to have the courage to tackle another year and to rededicate your lives to me. And so fill your heart with God and say, God, teach me, lead my heart into that remembrance and help me to honor and thank you. When I say I praise you, God, when I say 10,000 reasons, my heart is flooded with these images as I remember. I remember your goodness In my life, I am overwhelmed. It's like drinking from a fire hydrant. I am just overwhelmed with your goodness in my life. Would you just pray that prayer of coming before God and seeking him in that way as our worship team comes to close us out and as Pastor Dave comes to lead us in time of response?